Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study, we will take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches that when we sin, we are out of fellowship with God. We lose that ongoing rapport with God. We're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're no longer walking in truth. We're no longer walking in the light. We're walking in darkness according to the power of the sin nature. All we need to do to recover is to confess our sin, which simply means to name or, excuse me, to admit, to acknowledge our sin to God, to identify the sin that we've committed, and at that point we are uh, forgiven, cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this time to come together to study your word, to learn to think through what you have said in your word in a way that uh, helps us to see how the, the, what the underlying principles are in each promise and how we can incorporate the confidence stated in, that underlies each promise, it's stated in each promise, how we can incorporate that within our own mental attitude so that when we face the uh, significant problems, adversities, and challenges of life, Rather than becoming derailed by them, we can focus even more upon who you are and your provision for us and not cave into self-absorption and self-pity. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study on the promises of God and how to use what we call the faith rest drill. That is, faith emphasizes our dependence upon God Rest indicates the fact that we are resting in him, but it doesn't mean that we don't do what God says to do. It's not a pure passivity. It is doing what God says to do and resting in God's provision. We are, we've entered into this study as a side study from our study of 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 1.8, we're told that the Thessalonian church had a faith and a reputation for their faith, their trust in God, that went out throughout both Achaia and Macedonia. And so we were stopping or pausing in that study to look at how to use the faith rest drill, how to grow in our faith. And so we're looking at some different promises, taking some time to work our way through them to understand how this works. There's basically three components to the faith rest drill. The first is to mix our faith with the promises. We have to know something. We have to grab a hold of some promise uh, maybe just part of a verse, all of a verse, or a section of Scripture, but we're focusing on God's Word. When Jesus handled the temptation from Satan, he didn't handle it by, by just leaping to abstract principles. He focused upon God's Word. It is God's Word that has the power. It's God's promise that's significant. We need to make that a part of our life. The psalmist says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So the first part is grabbing a hold of that promise, mixing that promise with faith. We're working through how to do that. The second part is to think through the underlying rationale. Now, this is really nothing more than what uh, the scriptures talk about when they use the term meditation. Meditation is a thought word. In fact, the English word meditation is translated or, or translates several different Hebrew words. And most of these Hebrew words have something to do with, with, um, 
going over something again and again, thinking something through. Some of them are more concrete terms, for example, just, just repetitive action. And it's the idea that we're thinking something through over and over. We're turning it over in our mind again and again, uh, juicing it for everything we can get out of that particular uh, a verse, and that means we have to understand something about Bible study methods. So I really encourage people to go back and listen to the the class I taught on Bible study methods. It it gives us an ability to dig below the surface in the Word of God, and everybody has the capability to do this. I've often used the analogy of a, a mining engineer versus your, your sort of your average uh, uh, early miner. If you go back to the mid-1800s or the gold rush in California, you would find uh, people who would just go out and they would pan for gold. They understood a few basics about how to identify gold, how to tell the difference between uh, pyrites and gold, and, and they would pan for gold. And when they found a section, for example, in a creek where there was a, a lot of gold, they would then look for a a vein of gold that had sort of washed out and some of that gold, more of that gold had gone into the creek at that point. And then they were able to go a little deeper. They, if they had a little more knowledge about mining, they could begin to dig dig a hole and dig down to find the ore. But at some point you have to have more a more advanced knowledge of uh, mining engineering in order to uh, dig those deep, deep shafts to build them out and to extract uh, the real riches of the ore that are buried far beneath the surface. That's the role of the pastor teacher. But every, the everyday believer can, can pan for gold in the scriptures. They can skim the surface and maybe go a little bit below the surface just by using some of the basic tools that are available, uh, a good concordance, some of the good tools that are out there on the on the Internet now, and perhaps looking at a few good commentaries. You always have to understand something about commentaries if you're going to use them, but they can be very useful. For example, if you're looking at our passage, Isaiah 40:31, you can go to some basic commentaries and just get some information about the background, maybe the structure of the passage, an outline of the passage, and understanding uh, just a few things about the words in the passage. One of the most basic commentaries that I encourage people to get that is very helpful is the one that was produced by Dallas Seminary in the early 80s called the Bible Knowledge Commentaries, two volumes. Volume 1 is the Old Testament, Volume 2 is the New Testament. And unlike a lot of smaller one-volume or two-volume commentaries, the Dallas commentary sought to actually give you content, especially more difficult passages. But you always have to understand that, that commentaries can have certain weaknesses. The, uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary was written by different professors at Dallas Seminary. So they have uh, the different books have different strengths. There are some that are much better because they've been written by professors who taught that book for decades. Other books, not quite so much. There are some that were written by men who are more consistently dispensational and some that were written by men that were really less dispensational, although it doesn't necessarily show up in everything that they wrote. But, uh, for example, in Isaiah which in many ways is, is a little helpful, but the professor who wrote uh, the, the commentary on Isaiah, his name was John Martin, and I usually, uh, I always read his commentary on Isaiah with a little bit of, uh, uh, with my, my skeptical glasses on, because he, John Martin left uh, the seminary faculty a couple of years later, and at a at an evangelical theological society meeting, uh, for the dispensational study group some 10 years later, he actually admitted that he had seriously questioned dispensationalism for about five or six years before he ever left the faculty at Dallas Seminary, which would mean during the time that he wrote this commentary on Isaiah. So, um, you know, it's important to kind of know some things like that when you're reading because uh, not every book, everything written is of equal value, but it's still helpful. Another one I recommend 
is Tom Constable's notes. His name is spelled like a constable, like a sheriff, uh, Dr. Tom Constable. And he was a uh, professor. He was a little bit ahead of me at Dallas, and he had already gotten his doctorate and was a professor. And he's got a set of notes that cover the entire Bible. And they're a little bit more in-depth in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And he's uh, he's very clear on the gospel. He's very uh, He's free grace. And he's dispensational, um, so so constables' notes are pretty good. But these are just just basic summaries of, of passages, but they help you get the kind of uh, basic framework for studying uh, or thinking through a passage. And that's what we do when we're in that second stage uh, with a passage, and we're we're just try, trying to understand it, think through the underlying doctrinal rationale, because what you have to do is dig through the broader context of the passage, because God just didn't drop Isaiah 40:31 out of heaven. It's within the framework of, of a line of reasoning that is stated in Isaiah 40, and so we have to learn to think our way through that. It's also, if you notice, I've got a New King James Version, and I know New American Standard Versions and some other versions will take a, a passage like Isaiah, of 40 and break it out and like poetry because it's written in Hebrew poetry, whereas Isaiah 39 is written as prose. It's historical narrative. A lot of prophecy, though, is actually written in, in po- poetry, and so it's important to understand some of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry as well. And one of those is the use of figures of speech. And in figures of speech, you have a lot of comparisons that, that are made, uh, similes where you have two things compared in a stated comparison, that this is like that or as that, like or as are used. And a metaphor is an unstated comparison, which simply calls something uh something else, and so it's an unstated uh, comparison. When you have a phrase such as white as snow, that's a, that's a, a, a simile, but when God calls uh, Jerusalem, Sodom, and Gomorrah, he's not stating it as a comparison saying Jerusalem is like Sodom and Gomorrah, he just addresses them as Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a metaphor. He's making a comparison with Sodom and Gomorrah, but it's an unstated, unstated comparison because it doesn't use the word like or as. Now, in a lot of passages where God is talking about, or where God is the subject, we'll find anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. Now, in this passage, as we looked at last time, we saw that it's built on certain anthropomorphisms, and an anthropomorphism means that God is credited or viewed as having certain human attributes, physical human attributes, that he doesn't actually possess. The, the word is made up of two Greek words, anthropos, meaning man, and morphos, meaning form, or morphe, excuse me, it's a feminine noun, morphe meaning form. So it's attributing certain physical forms to God, which he doesn't actually possess. That's really important to understand that phrase, he doesn't actually possess. These are, these are certain uh, figures of speech that attribute a hand to God, uh, which is really a figure in, indicating his, his uh, power, the arm of God, again, indicating his power, his omnipotence, the eyes of God going to and fro over the earth, indicating his omniscience, things of that nature. So it's important to understand these anthropomorphisms and just exactly what, what they mean. Now, when we look at our passage in, in verse 31, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. See, there's a comparison. Uh, the wings like an eagle mounting, rising from the ground, uh, showing strength and power as you watch an eagle uh, fly off into the heavens. And so that's a picture of strength. Um, so they shall mount up with wings like eagles. Uh, then you have two clear st- uh, straight statements. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, this comes out of a context. We looked at this last time, that if you just go back a few verses to verse 28, 
there's a series of rhetorical questions that are asked to draw our attention to God. Israel's in the midst of a problem. The prophecy of, of Isaiah takes place in the um, uh, 700s. This is when uh, the northern kingdom uh, has uh, has already been taken out and the southern kingdom is in existence but Isaiah is warning that God is going to bring judgment upon the southern kingdom eventually and that it would come from the Babylonians this was yet to be another 150 or so years uh, years later and so he's he's been announcing judgments in the first part and in the second part from Isaiah uh, 40 on to the end of the book from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66. The focus is on on God God's eventual restoration of the nation. So he knows that during this period of time, from the time that they're taken out under judgment in 586 B.C. and the whole process of their being uh, brought to judgment that occurred through three different invasions by Nebuchadnezzar starting in 605 and, and concluding with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, that Israel would go through some incredibly horrible times, times of, of massive suffering, times when uh, hundreds of thousands would be killed horribly in battle or through uh, famine or disease, and that there would be times when people would be uh, tempted, seriously tempted to hopelessness and to just giving up and, and thinking that God had completely forgotten about them. And this covers the entire period between 586 until the restoration of the nation. So a lot of what happened historically is also used as a type or a pattern of what they will go through in the end time. So that plays a definite role in the prophecies of Isaiah uh, 40 through 66. And so throughout their experience, they're going to be tempted to doubt God. And so there is a need to turn back to God and understand who he, who he is. So the, what, what underlies Isaiah 40 and 41, because we're going to get to that uh, before we're done in this lesson, in Isaiah 40, what undergirds the promise is understanding the essence of God. So in verse 28, uh, he says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, that was the first thing we noted last week, referring to eternal life, the Lord, referring to his covenant identity as Yahweh, indicating the sovereign God, uh, the creator, and that he is faithful, faithful to his covenant, which brings in the idea um, of his uh, immutability, his faithfulness, uh, the creator of the ends of the earth, again, emphasizing his sovereignty, neither faints nor is weary, that emphasizes his omnipotence, and his understanding is unsearchable, which, in, which emphasizes his omniscience. So we have these ten attributes that we put in the essence box, summarizing the essence of God, uh, his sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, veracity, and immutability. Think through these things when you're thinking through promises. How does this promise take me back to the character of God so that everything ultimately becomes theocentric or God-centered? It focuses us back that the real source of stability in our lives is God, that no matter what we might be facing, whether it's a health crisis, whether it's a financial crisis, whether it's a crisis dealing with our children, our grandchildren, no matter what that crisis might be, that God is not surprised. God is omniscient. He's always known about it. God is omnipotent. He has the capability to handle the situation. God is faithful to us. That never changes. He's, he's immutable. And as the creator God, he is overseeing his creation. And so things may seem to be out of control, but actually uh, they are not out of control. So it throws us back to understanding his character. This is important for Israel as they go through these changes, as they go through discipline, uh, as they, they, the warnings of the judgments in the first 39 chapters take us to the last part, which focuses on God's restoration. 
God will solve the problem, but it may not be in our time. For Israel, the final solution of their problem is going to come in the end times, and that has yet to come. So 2,500 years, 2,600 years have gone by since these promises were made, and yet God ultimately will fulfill those promises, and all will be made, all will be made right. So the focus is on hope, that confidence. Furthermore, we saw in uh, verses 12 and following that through a series of questions, uh, Isaiah is focusing our attention upon uh, who God who God is, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, who's measured heaven with a span. Uh, these emphasize God's omnipresence and his omnipotence. He's greater than the creation, who's calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Now, this is really a, an interesting idea because uh, in the ancient world, they didn't have uh, scales that were quite as accurate as ours, and neither were those who weighed things out quite as concerned about accuracy. And so when, when he uses this idea, who calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, that if you were weighing uh, something and there was a little dust or something else in, in there, uh, that wouldn't be taken into account. And so calculating the weight of dust, something microscopic, something that is what would at that time have uh, been uh, difficult for them to measure, uh, God could measure. So that's the, that's the sense of that question. Uh, so that's something very, very small, something that is on the small end of the scale. And then in the other end, you have the, the statement, weighed the mountains in, the, in scales. So here's something that is incredibly heavy. How could you weigh uh, something like Mount Everest or Mount Rainier or something of that nature, Mount Carmel? How could you weigh, weigh that? Um, but God could weigh it. So you have that God's knowledge extends from the most minute to the, to the largest, the, uh, the enormity of large mountains, uh, mountains and hills. So that emphasizes the knowledge of God, his omniscience. Verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or has his counselors taught him that God is not under anyone higher. There's no one who knows more, no one that can inform God in his omniscience. He knows all of the knowable and he never learns anything because God always knows everything, both the possible and the actual. Isaiah 40:14 goes on to express that same thing. With whom did he take counsel? There is no one to whom God goes to for counsel or for advice. No one who teaches him. So the first question there is, with whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him? Answer, no one. Who taught him in the path of justice? No one. He is inherently uh, knowledgeable. He, he intuitively knows everything, and he is in the core of his being righteous He and just. He doesn't need to learn anything at all. So verse 14 emphasizes his omniscience and his justice. Notice you don't separate the capability of God from his righteousness. They are connected together within his, his character, and they're connected together uh, in his the way in which he acts to take care of us. So he always acts in conformity to his righteousness. And his righteousness always is working consistently with his omniscience, omnipresence, and um, uh, omnipotence. Then in verse 15 we read, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Now, this is particularly important when you think of the, their context, when they, they've seen the northern kingdom overrun by, by Assyria, and uh, they've been threatened by Assyria under Hezekiah. This was at the time of, of Isaiah's uh, life and writing, so he's witnessed the destruction of the northern kingdom, and much of his writing is to the southern kingdom uh, under the threat of Assyria. And he knows that there will be future times of threat to Israel from other nations. And he says these nations are like a drop from a bucket. Uh, they are insignificant 
compared to God's ability, God's power, and God's greatness. They're like a speck of dust on the scales. Again, we go back to that analogy of something very, very small. They are, they are so small, they are relatively insignificant when compared to God. And he, it says he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. The, the phrase, the islands of the earth, the, there were many islands around Greece, and Greece was sort of not, not the furthest land that they knew about, but as you went to the east, you had the islands of Greece, the islands um, uh, off of you have Malta, you have Sicily, you go further out into the Atlantic, there were other, uh, other islands, and I'm convinced that at least under Solomon that the navy of, uh, of Israel uh, went out into the Atlantic, circumnavigated the African coast, and so they were where? So the islands would be the furthest extent uh, of the earth going beyond the Middle East, going beyond uh, beyond Europe. So he says that God lifts up the isles as a small thing that's relatively insignificant. Just as the wind blows uh, blows the dust into the air, so God uh, God can can blow the islands away, the the powers of these these distant nations. And then we have another phrase, another verse that seems difficult to understand initially. He says, even Lebanon is not enough to burn. Now, now that's a verse that seems a little bit awkward to understand, but he's using a figure of speech where Lebanon is put for something that is common to Lebanon and something that is produced by Lebanon. We've all heard the phrase, the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon was known to be intensely forested, and it is a source of great lumber. And so Lebanon is put for what it produces here, and it's talking about, uh, if you, he's basically saying, if you were to take all of the, all of the, uh, forest of of Lebanon, that it would not be enough to sacrifice to God. The, in effect, he's saying that the largest altar imaginable, with the largest conceivable amount of firewood, and the finest animals available, uh, would are not sufficient to sacrifice to fully honor God, because his he is incomprehensible. He is so immense uh, that he goes beyond anything that we can uh, we can conceive of. And so, verse sixteen isn't a departure from the context. It's flowing there. Just giving another example related to the omnipotence and the omnipresence and omniscience of God. And then in verse seventeen. All the nations before him are as nothing. This sort of presents us with a conclusion. And they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. So you could paraphrase that in application to your experience or my experience, that no matter what the problem might be, it's nothing to God. That that it may seem large, uh, like an impossible obstacle to us, but it is nothing for the Lord to handle. And so this takes us to the three, what I call the omni-brothers and the characteristics of God, omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. And when you think through that in terms of any problem, you take your problem, and you say, does God, did God always know about this? Was there a time when God was unaware that I would make this decision, face this consequence? Last time we talked about the uh, ten different reasons for suffering. Was there ever a time when God knew that I wouldn't encounter this suffering, whether it's from my own bad decisions or whether it's from living in the world system or being somehow connected to a government or business that's making bad decisions, was God ever unaware of the extent of the problem that I'm facing? And the answer, of course, is no. And God is omnipresent, which means that God is not subject to the space-time limitations that we're of the creation. He is beyond the creation. He, as the creator, he is not subject to the limitations 
of the creation. So omnipresence means that God in his being is fully and totally present to every every atom in his creation at every moment of time. So he is as fully present with us here today as he is to uh, troops in Afghanistan. He is as fully present there as he is in Israel. He's as fully present there as he is in Europe or in Australia. He is fully present to every believer as he is to any other believer. And so when you think about these first two, you realize that God is more than capable, and that's the third uh, attribute we're emphasizing, his omnipotence. He is able to do whatever he desires to do. He can fulfill that. So he has the ability, and he has given us of his Holy Spirit and of his word so that through them we have access to him and to his ability to resolve those problems. So then Isaiah goes on and he focuses on, again, continues to focus on the character of God. He says, to whom then will you liken God? There's no analogy we can come up with that fully communicates the character of God. A lot of times people come up with various uh, uh, aspects of creation to try to understand the Trinity. But there's nothing we can compare God to. There's nothing that fully, completely, and accurately uh, compares God. It just, just p- parts of God's character can be understood through looking at his creation because he is so much greater than his creation. So uh, Isaiah says, to whom then will you liken God? To no one. To nothing. Or what likeness will you compare to him? There's nothing that truly compares to him. And then he talks about idolatry, which was a major problem in the ancient world, just the problem today. The problem today is that we don't make physical images. Uh, People are not constructing images of gold and silver and wood and stone to worship. They are constructing images of in their mind, they're, they're worshiping themselves, they're worshiping uh, status symbols in life, they're worshiping money, which is greed. Scripture clearly teaches that greed is idolatry, uh, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, and so, uh, even though the idolatry today is a more abstract idolatry, it is still a worship of something other than God as the source of strength or happiness or uh, uh Uh, salvation from problems, deliverance from problems. So in verses 19 and 20, he talks about the the workman who molds an image, and then the goldsmith spreads it over with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. They decorate it. They they make it valuable. Uh, Interestingly, I was talking with someone recently, and they were uh, communicating to me a story about how uh, some years ago they worked with... um, an Indian family, an Indian uh, couple that they got to know through through work. And at dinner, the Indian family, they, the lady, the wife, was talking about how their the area where they lived uh, uh, in Houston and out in the Sugarland area had a lot of Indians, and they were experiencing a lot of break-ins, and a lot of people were. Um, uh, breaking into the homes of the Indians because they knew that Indians usually had a lot of goals. And then just as part of the conversation, as if it was an everyday thing, she said, you know, Indians worship idols, and we have lots of idols of silver and gold in our homes, and so people break in to steal those. And the person who was telling me this said they were just so flabbergasted by this open admission uh, to idolatry that they really didn't know how to respond to that. But, but that is true. We have physical idolatry going on today in many cultures, uh, many cultures of the world. So um, Isaiah is writing to, with some level of sarcasm here, about those who make gods out of physical things. Here, they are making this god and then trying to attribute to it the, the uh, attributes of deity. And so he is, he is pointing out the futility of this, that, that here God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is beyond comparison, and the futility of people who think that they can find hope 
and uh, success from some idol that they uh, that they have have made. And so this is the focus on the negative here in verses 19, 19 and twenty. And then in twenty one and twenty two, he brings our attention back to to God again and back to what the scriptures teach. And he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Emphasizing that you've heard this all along. You've heard it in your Bible studies. You've heard it in Bible class. You've been taught, taught about the essence of God over and over and over again. But you're not connecting that to the reality of your problems and the reality of your, your adversity. This is a God, in verse 22 again, emphasizing the immensity or omnipresence of God. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Incidentally, this was one of the verses that long before Columbus uh, emphasized that the earth was round, there were Bible scholars who recognized that the earth was round because of this particular phrase, the circle of the earth. The Bible never, and Christianity, biblical Christianity, never understood the world to be flat, but that it was always always round. So biblical science, long before Columbus, clearly understood that the geography of the earth meant that the earth was round based upon this, this passage for one. He, he, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Again, emphasizing the greatness of God in comparison to something that is extremely small and inconsequential. That he is the creator God. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. God's power is so great that if he could could create the universe, then, of course, your problem and my problem are relatively insignificant. He's greater than all of the rulers and all of the kingdoms, and he is the one that oversees history. He brings the princes to nothing and makes the judges of the earth useless. Sometimes we think this he would hurry up and make some judges uh, around uh, this country uh, useless, that he would hurry up and do that. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. It may seem like they have their day, and their day is too long, but in the overall uh, panorama of God's plan, uh, he is working out his purposes, and all things will work together for good, and God will eventually recompense the righteous in, term, in bringing judgment against those who are unrighteous. And then in verse uh, 25, we see that God, God speaks. He says, To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Again, going back to the doctrine of the creator-creature distinction. This, why, this is why the debate, or one reason why the debate between creation and evolution is so important. The Bible again and again and again builds numerous doctrines upon the Creation of God, going back to a understanding of a literal Genesis 1, a literal 24-hour, six-consecutive-day creation where God made the heavens, the earth, and the seas, and all that is in them. This is so important. It underlies everything. If, if God is not the creator God of Genesis 1, then how can we ever claim the promises uh, that we find in passages like Isaiah 40. They're predicated upon the truth of Genesis 1 being literal. That's the rationale. And so if God didn't create these things, then we can't come to the right conclusion in Isaiah 40:31 about God's, uh, God's care for us. We're left in a hopeless situation and a hopeless world if God isn't the creator God of the Bible. And so God, as God speaks, he focuses our attention upon his, his greatness as the creator. He says, he brought out their host by number. This word host usually refers to the angels. It is an antiquated English word that means an army. 
And so it could mean that that he brings out all of the inhabitants. It could be used metaphorically to refer to all of the stars in the heavens, but it likely, I believe, refers to his creation of the angelic host, and he has named each and every one of them. Their number is beyond count, according to Revelation, but he calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. He keeps count of everything. Nothing is lost. And so God's not going to overlook you. God hasn't forgotten about you and your problem because he's more concerned about solving problems in the Middle East or solving problems in Afghanistan or solving problems related to someone else somewhere else on the planet. God knows your problem, and he's fully present in his omnipresence, fully present in your life. He's fully aware of everything going on in your life, and he hasn't forgotten you. So... He says to, to Israel, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? Why don't you put your name in there in place of Jacob and Israel at some point? Because we all do this. We think God's forgotten us. God's off doing something else. Uh, why do you say this, he says to Jacob and Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by God. We all reach points where we cave in instead of trust. We cave into self-pity, and we think God has overlooked us and forgotten us. And this was the way Israel was operating. And so, uh, in response to that, that's where we come into the immediate context of our promise of verse 31, where we have th- these rhetorical questions I started off with. Have you not known and have you not heard? You know, here you're claiming God's not involved, God's overlooked your problem. Maybe your problem's something simple with the normal problems everybody faces in life. Maybe it's something much larger. Maybe you're struggling with understanding the problem of evil in the world. Maybe you're struggling with something like, how can God let something like the Holocaust take place? How can God allow uh, these tremendous injustices to take place uh, in human history where you have uh, uh, tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people who are slaughtered by unjust governments? For example, uh, what happened during World War II under uh, the Nazis or even worse under Stalin in Russia. How can God allow these things to happen? And so we think that somehow uh, God is ignoring these things, that he's not capable, but that's because we have such a tiny, tiny view of God and such a tiny, tiny view of history and his purposes. And what these verses do is they expand our horizons to understand them more fully, that that, that we want God to hurry up and solve it now, whereas God is working through decades or centuries to bring about the solution. So in verse 28, we have these rhetorical questions to focus our attention upon uh, God's attributes, his eternality, his faithfulness, that he is the creator, sovereign God of the universe, that he's omnipotent, he neither faints nor is weary, he is uh, omniscient, his understanding is unsearchable. Then it goes on, he says, he gives power to the weak. We are the weak. He transfers his power to us. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. This is God's modus operandi. He is a gracious God who desires to come to our aid and to supply our need. And then we have the lead into verse 31. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Every human being reaches the end of his resources. The end of our capabilities, the end of our power, even the ones, the youth who have the most power, the most strength, the most endurance, even they will eventually reach the end of their resources and they collapse. But then those who wait on the Lord will have their own source of strength where God's strength is in exchange for our strength. They shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. Now, when we look at the structure here, the one thing that really, to me, stands out more than anything is this creator-creature distinction. God is beyond our understanding. Uh, There is nothing about him that we can fully comprehend, although we can understand 
true things about God to a certain point, we cannot understand him comprehensively. So we have a limited, finite understanding of reality, and we have to trust in him on the basis of what we learn from this limited, uh, limited reality. And so as we think through uh, the, this, the rationale here, we come to certain conclusions. And the conclusion that we come to is that God is capable to handle the problems, whether they're the massive problems that a believer in Israel would have faced at that time, being overrun by the Assyrians or later the Babylonians, that God is still has his integrity. He's not being unjust. He's not being unfair. He's not being unrighteous. That was the whole issue with Job. Job is is really being tested to ask the question, how can a righteous God let all these things happen to me when again and again Job had been declared to be blameless and upright before the Lord? How can these terrible things happen to me? We have this assumption that if I'm a good person, then God, then good things will happen to me. But many times we do the right thing the right way and we're the right kind of person and horrible things happen because we're living in the devil's world or for many other reasons, as I discussed the last time, uh, depending upon what God is doing in our life. And just uh, last night, I'm recording this in July and probably won't be viewed until November, and uh, we'll probably know the solution to this. But yesterday, we learned of the case, the situation of this young doctor who is uh, 33 years old. He's married. He has two children. And he has now contracted Ebola. And he is uh, uh, very likely, unless God intervenes, very likely going to die because the fatality rate for those who contract Ebola is so high. And we wonder, how can God let that happen? Is God just, here's this wonderful individual who's giving of himself to help and aid others, and yet... Uh, he's very likely going to lose his life because he's trying to do uh, do the right thing for the right right reasons. And so we have to come back to some fundamentals about God. And one of these is clearly stated as part of Genesis 18.25, where Abraham states that the judge of all the earth will do right. We may not understand it at the time. We may not know all the details and all the facts. But we know if God is righteous then he's always going to do the right thing and that we have to trust him and rely upon him because he is a good God and he is working out certain things in in human history. Now, before I uh, wrap up this lesson, I want to look at one more passage that is in the same context, and it flows from chapter 40 into chapter 41. It's the same situation that God is comforting Israel. And again, we, and so I want to take our attention to Isaiah 41.10, where God says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so we see this this clear statement in Isaiah 41.10, and I want to just read before you, read for you as we lead up to that, the context. This is what we need to do in that first stage of claiming a promise, just thinking through the context, uh, mixing our faith with uh, the promise, and then actually this is stage two, thinking through the doctrinal rationales embedded in the promise. As we claim a promise and think it through, we have to look at the context. So, Forget the fact that there's a chapter division there, because those were just inserted much later on. Forget any other comments that are made. There's just a flow from from Isaiah 40, 31 into verse 1 of the next chapter. So there's this, this strong statement of giving hope to Israel at the end of chapter 40. And then God speaks, continues to speak in verse 1. He says, Keep silent before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. So the coastlands would be a reference to the Gentile nations. And God is calling upon them to keep silent. And he says, uh, let, uh, let the people renew their strength. How do they renew their strength? They renew their strength by waiting upon the Lord. Verse 31. 
So verse 31, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. So let the people renew their strength by focusing upon the Lord. Let them come near, that is, in fellowship with God, in dependence upon them. Let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. And then he goes on to say, Who raised up one from the east who in righteousness called him to his feet? So the who refers to God. That God is going to raise up someone from the east and that he does this in his righteousness. So God will provide a solution and a deliverance for Israel. This is a a reference uh, to Cyrus the Great who eventually... Uh, is identified in chapter 44, verse 28, as the one who will allow Israel to return to the land. But this is focusing their attention on the fact that God has a plan and will provide a human person who will help deliver them, bring them back to the land. He goes on to say, Who, again referring to God, who gave the nations before him, that is a reference to uh, this deliverer Cyrus, uh, brought him to a position of power and authority over over Persia, who made him rule over kings. God is the one who will raise up a human leader, give him power, give him victory over these other nations, who will enable him to deliver Israel. Verse 3, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone away with his feet, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning. The emphasis here is on who is the who. God is the one who is doing all these things in history. He says, I am the Lord, I am the first, and with the last I am he. This reminds us very much of some statements that we might find in uh, in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 1.17 and 22.13, the Lord is the first and the last. So again, this points out that you can't understand those passages in Isaiah without going, I mean in, in Revelation, without going back to Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4. God is the first and the last. He therefore is able to oversee and control his creations. Then verse 5, we we go on to read, The coastland saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer was inspired, inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It's ready for the soldering. Then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. And so this is talking about the, the coastlands, uh, which again is referring to the Gentile nations and their, their fear of God as they witness, uh, witness his power. And they're trying to give one another confidence, give each other a pep talk uh, against God. And this is indicated by the, the, by the contrast in verse 8. In contrast to the coastlands and their reaction to God negatively, uh, because they're trying to, to band together against God, much like Psalm 2 talks about the kings of the earth organizing against, against the Messiah. In verse 8 we read, But you, Israel, are my servants. So that's the contrast. The people of the coastlands are described in 5 through 7 in contrast to Israel, my servant. You are Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. And so that takes us back to the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. So God is stating that he hasn't finally and and completely rejected Israel. It, it pictures a time when he is going to bring Israel from the ends of the earth. The promise in Deuteronomy uh, 29 was that God would eventually bring judgment upon Israel and scatter them to the ends of the earth. And in Deuteronomy 30, that when they turn back to God, God would restore them from the ends of the earth. So this is clearly talking about the event that ultimately takes place at the end of the tribulation time when Jesus returns. 
if we establish that as the time frame in verses 8 and 9, then that tells us again that, that, that that's what's being pictured in 5 through 7 is this revolt of the Gentiles against God that's depicted in Psalm 2 when the kings of the earth gather together against the Lord and his Messiah. And so... Verse 9, again, God's emphasizing he has a plan for Israel, that eventually he will restore them from this uh, worldwide dispersion, and he will bring them back to the land. And I believe that the uh, initial part of this is what we've been witnessing over the the last uh, hundred years or more, going back really to the first Aliyah, which began in the 1880s. And that God is bringing Israel back now. It's mostly in unbelief. But the final restoration one talked about here is the one that occurs at the end of the tribulation, which is in belief. So he, in verse 9, he says, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not. So so the command to fear not is addressed to the present time, uh, 6th century B.C. Fear not, even though you are being overrun by Gentiles, even though your nation's being destroyed, even though you're seeing all of this calamity and your friends and neighbors are being uh, murdered and violently destroyed in, in this discipline, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid when everything around you is coming uh, apart. For I am with you. Present tense, I'm still with you. The end game is, and it may not be for 2,500 or 3,000 years that I will restore you to the land, but in the meantime, I am still with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Now, these two words are important. The first word, fear, although it can mean respect or awe, has this idea of don't panic. Don't cave into fear. Don't let anxiety overrule you. The second word that is used is the word dis- translated dismayed. This is the Hebrew word shatah, which means don't look anxiously about. Or don't be overwhelmed by anxiety or worry. Don't let the circumstances control your life. No matter how dark things may appear, no matter how difficult things might be, Don't let this overwhelm you. Uh, Remember, I am still in charge, and I am with you. So the command is not to be afraid, not to be dismayed, because God is present. Then he goes on to say, uh, For I will strengthen you, yes, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so, again, God's actions are emphasized as being in concord with his righteousness. There is a consistency. Even though Israel will go through all of these horrible things, God is still righteous. Now, the application for us is in the same way God has a plan for us, and God will sustain us. We have similar promises like Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Uh, in the New Testament to tell us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. We're not to cave in to panic, fear, worry, anxiety. We're not to let our circumstances get the best of us, because we have the same God, a God who has a plan and a purpose. He's the God who strengthens us, and he is a God who will always act in our lives in a righteous way. So we need to learn to rest and relax in him that no matter what we face, and we hopefully will never face the kind of uh, calamity Israel faced at that time. We don't face uh, invasion from foreign powers. We're not overrun. We're not being dragged off as captives to a foreign land. Hopefully we will never, never face that in our lives. But we will face other tragedies of a much less lower order and significance But nevertheless, we are often tempted just to cave in, to be depressed, to be anxious, and even to uh, forget about God and turn our back on God, thinking that he has turned his back on us. But this promise tells us never to fear, never to give in to apprehension, never to panic, 
never to dismay, never to quit, because God is always for us, and he is the one who will sustain us in the most uh, difficult of all circumstances. Uh, Next time we'll come back, uh, and we will continue to look at this promise a little bit and some of the other promises that God gives us as we think through how we can use them in our everyday life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning and to be able to uh, put these principles into effect, to think through your character, that that lies behind your promises, and thinking through that the fact that you are always righteous in your dealings with us, and therefore, even though all things are not good, All things will work together for good. You will work all these things together for good because of your love for us. And so we can completely and totally entrust ourselves to you, knowing that no matter what happens, no matter how dark things may appear, you will take care of us and sustain us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.